Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Professor James Hull, a consultant respiratory physician based at Royal Brompton Hospital in London in the UK and the Institute of Sports, Exercise and Health at University College London. After completing an undergraduate degree in exercise physiology, James went on to graduate from the oldest medical school in London, St. George's, with his medical degrees. In 2010, he completed his PhD in vascular physiology and chronic lung disease before hopping across the pond to get his BTA, been to America, at the University of California, Los Angeles, or UCLA, to develop further expertise in exercise testing with clinical applications. James specializes in asthma, cough, unexplained breathlessness, and exercise physiology, and is clinical lead for the cough, unexplained breathlessness, and upper airway vocal cord dysfunction service at the Royal Brompton Hospital, which, for those of you who don't know, is a world-renowned chest hospital. James is an international expert in helping athletes with breathing problems and sits on the respiratory expert panel at both the English Institute of Sport and the International Olympic Committee. He was recently awarded fellowship status of the American College of Sports Medicine and is president of the Association for Respiratory Technology and Physiology, based here in the UK. James is also co-chair of an expert group called RELAX, which is R-E-L-A-C-S, which is progressing the management of individuals with large airway collapse with symptoms and tracheobronchomalacia. And if that wasn't enough, he's also recently co-authored a textbook. Uh, If he has any spare time, he likes to, well, pretend to be a mammal, a middle-aged man in lycra and go cycling. So get on your bike. Uh, Professor James Hull, welcome to the podcast. A real pleasure to have you. Wow. Thank you for that introduction. Incredibly kind. I look forward to chatting to you, Jonathan. Likewise. So I I always like to know what got people into medicine and specifically into the field they they work in, because I'm I'm sort of developing a thesis as as to why we end up doing what we're doing. I think actually I was most interested um, during my sort of later school years in exercise and sport and exercise physiology. And so for quite a large period of time, I wanted to become a physiologist or an exercise physiologist. And then I sort of leant back into sort of wanting to do medicine, but I always kept an interest in exercise physiology. And so I did an undergraduate degree with Brian Whipp at St. George's, which looked at cardiopulmonary exercise testing. And then sort of as I progressed through my career, I became more interested in breathing issues, particularly breathing issues in athletic individuals with, of course, a natural lean towards asthma. Uh, And that sort of took me into respiratory medicine and uh, sort of followed me through to the sort of specialism I have or specialist interest uh, and my clinical practice now. So um, I I have a obviously a professional interest uh, and a personal interest in all of this because I had COVID uh, pretty badly and one of the symptoms that I was left with the so-called long COVID symptom was breathlessness but you know my um, I kept I fly airplanes and I have my own pulse oximeter for that purpose and my pulse ox was fine but i was breathless so i'm i'm fascinated by this whole world so some of my questions have a sort of personal bent to them this and this this next one well may sound like a dumb question let's start at the beginning when i'm a simple surgeon when we place extra demand on our bodies such as when exercising we need more oxygen right the more physically fit one is the less breathless is that a naive summary because 
part of your research interest is to determine why people get breathless with physical activity. Can you expand on my rather sophomoric description and let us know why this is and why exercise is a trigger? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're still learning an awful lot about why people become breathless, not just in the context of doing hard physical activity, but of course, on an everyday basis. And we know that the prevalence of breathlessness on activity increases as you get older and maybe encountered in up to a third of people once they get over the age of 70. So you know, there's an awful lot we need to understand about why people are breathless, particularly why people get breathless in the absence of any underlying pathological cause for that. So you know, with normal CT scans of the lung, and yeah. normal lung function tests. And of course, you know, the symptom of breathlessness arises from the higher centers, a bit like pain. You know, at the end of the day, you have to perceive something. And so there has been a move certainly over the last decade to try and understand that a little bit better by trying to understand the inputs and the outputs from sensors of the brain that then lead to the perception of breathlessness. And it seems to be that there is an imbalance sometimes between the load and what is placed on the breathing systems and how much one would expect that load to be placed. And so, for instance, if you have a lung disease process, the system is on an increased load and you perceive that. In other circumstances where there isn't increased load, there may be something different with the central processing and the way that the feedback loops tell the brain how much your breathing should be working and what you actually expect. And it's that disconnect which makes you feel breathless. So, I mean, often people come to me and say, I feel like I don't have enough oxygen or I can't get enough air into my lungs or I can't get enough oxygen through to the muscles. And of course, when you measure oxygen saturation, it's completely normal and it isn't a problem with gas exchange. It's a problem with the perception of breathlessness and it maybe is likely explained by the way the chest is moving or the um, way in which the, the chest is loaded and the muscles are working as opposed to an absolute problem with oxygen delivery. And I guess um, one of the well, one of the symptoms of anxiety, of course, is is that sense of breathlessness. And there's the this whole move to sort of mindfulness and breathing exercises and box breathing and all these different ways of you know just breathe. You know, it's even it's, it's entered the common lexicon. Just breathe. Um, is that a percentage of what you see or read about or hear about? Yeah, that's a huge chunk of my clinical practice. I get referred patients from all over the country who have been through a series of tests often to try and determine why they feel they can't get enough air in or they feel they can't get a satisfying breath or they're gasping for air. And those tests haven't revealed an answer or an explanation. And we spend time looking at the patterns of their breathing. And we're particularly interested here at the Brompton in a condition called a breathing pattern disorder, which our respiratory physiotherapists then assess and help patients to, to, to breathe in a natural or a more normal way. And I'm sure listeners will have seen books, uh, you know, certainly in the airport, where people are talking about breathing techniques and using diaphragmatic breathing and nasal predominant breathing patterns. And those are good principles. When things go wrong, what I can sometimes find is that people try and read their way out of the problem that they've got and in fact, actually, sometimes that can exacerbate the problem. And thus, really what you do need are therapists and particularly, obviously, physiotherapists uh, to try and help people adopt or return to a normal breathing pattern. Um, and so, you know, there's a great dearth of expert physios in this country to enable people to have access 
uh, and often people are just told it's one of those things um, and they just need to get on with it and there's nothing wrong with their tests. There's an awful lot more we could be doing to try and help patients with this type of issue. I, I do know, just to continue on this vein a little bit, um, the, the concept of, you know, mindful breathing, there's, there's some pretty good data that this, this changes heart rate variability, blood pressure comes down, all those kind of things, and that it is a, rela- a, a, a relaxation technique. And whatever the disease one has, there's always the dis-ease, the, the overbearance, the, the anxiety that goes along with any physical condition. And just because something doesn't have, an, I guess, an organic cause doesn't mean that patients aren't suffering from it, right? I completely agree. And I mean, you can go back over hundreds of years where people have exploited breathing techniques and different methodologies to try and manipulate the autonomic nervous system and to change vagal and parasympathetic tone. And certainly there's studies that have shown that that can affect blood pressure control and uh, anxiety levels, as you say, and other metabolic phenomena. And, and, you know, an example more recently is, of course, Wim Hof's techniques, which, yes. um, you know, have gained a lot of sort of publicity in that respect. I mean, what I tend, I'm not really in the field of using sort of tantric or other breathing techniques as part of my everyday, you know, role. But if I, if I find people that are struggling with their breathing and they can't, they have the sort of problems like struggling to walk up a flight of stairs or can't get a deep breath in or waking up feeling panicked with their breathing, then yet many of these techniques are exploited by respiratory physiotherapists to try and get people to readopt a normal pattern, which is not which is which is more adaptive or functional move them away from a pattern that often can for instance lead to sort of things like hyperventilation that can exacerbate uh, general symptoms and anxiety well as, as, as i said at the beginning i'm going to be a little bit selfish by by, by going down that route of question Let, let's dig into something else you're you're collaborating with the english institute of sport which is now termed the uk sports institute on presumably a major rebranding program uh, on a project aiming to optimize respiratory health in a large cohort of elite athletes who are, who are known to be susceptible to respiratory illness. Can you tell us more about the project and why are some athletes susceptible? And I guess what you've uncovered, it strikes me as a bit of an irony of an athlete who's got problems breathing. Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, the prevalence of respiratory conditions in elite athletic individuals, particularly endurance athletes, is remarkably high. And that's not just from what they might describe as the symptoms that they get, but you know, a number of decent and objective studies over the last 30, 40 years have shown that the prevalence of conditions that look a bit like asthma are genuinely very high in endurance athletes. And we're still trying to work out why that might be, whether it's to do with the environment, particularly for instance, in swimming and very cold air, that may upset the airways to a certain degree. But it's genuinely true that, that an asthma-related condition is the most common chronic medical condition encountered in an endurance athlete. The project I've been doing with the UK Sports Institute um, over several years now has actually been focused on trying to work out are there factors we can identify and modify that make athletes more susceptible to infection? And that might seem sort of relatively minor issue in an athlete's career to think about that. But when we look back and we add up the number of days lost from respiratory tract infection over the course of, for instance, an athlete preparing for an Olympic competition, those days add up considerably across the whole board for the, for the athlete cohort. And they interrupt 
um, steady and progressive training. So you're training, you're getting, you know, you're making gains, and then suddenly you get knocked back by an infection, and you have to have a rest period. And of course, that was that was very prominent over COVID. And so we wanted to do this piece of work and uh, working with the athlete health lead for UKSI, uh, Craig Ranson, and others at, at this institute and at the ISCH. We undertook studies to look and see, you know. Are susceptible athletes more likely to have asthma? Are they more likely to have reflux on the stomach tract? Are they more likely to have nasal disease? What do we know about their immune system? Are there certain factors which we can modify to try and reduce the prevalence and impact of these types of infections? And, and that's the work we've been doing. We've published some of that work, uh, and it's an ongoing piece of work which I hope will you know, reward the athletes as they get to the Paris Games next summer. So you mentioned um, reflux, uh, I was a surgeon, fixed a lot of patients with, with reflux, with uh, hiatal hernias and Barrett's esophagus. And many of these patients did present with chronic cough and breathlessness and they'd sort of, they'd lost their lower esophageal sensation. So they're, they're aspirating uh, and damaging their lungs. And it really, really fascinated me. And we, we actually did a lot of work with the pediatric um, a group in in the United States that I was working with, um, and they were identifying lots of children uh, with reflux. So yeah, fascinating world. So tell us a little bit about your relax group, which I mentioned in my intro, working to help individuals with large airway collapse with symptoms and tracheobronchomalacia. I should say that most of our audience are healthcare professionals, but some are not. So could you perhaps start at the ground floor with some definitions and, and then get deep into it? So again, um, a bit like some of the other aspects of the work that I do in my career, I'm often seeing people with asthma-related symptoms, and actually the diagnosis or the main issue doesn't turn out to be asthma. That's, it might sound like a slightly strange thing, but you know, people often are given lots of asthma treatment, and then they go up in higher and higher doses, and for instance, then are given things like oral steroid. And in fact, it's something which is sort of looking like or mimicking asthma, but is then confusing people and meaning that they go down the wrong alleyway in terms of the type of treatment. Uh, and continue to struggle. And one of those mimics or comorbidities which can cause problems in this context is a condition where the large airway, so I'm talking about the main airway, the trachea, and the main bronchi, can fold in or collapse in when people breathe out. Now, of course, those airways have an important function when you cough. They, they're designed to fold in a little bit to help secretions move up through the airway tree, and then you cough them clear. But in some people, that folding in can become excessive uh, often as a condition called excessive dynamic airway collapse. When you breathe out, there's excessive closure. And the cartilage structures of the trachea that keep it open and keep it in the shape um, uh, that is that's maintained to help airway clearance can also become inflamed and irritated. Um, and like any pathology affecting a cartilage, it's a malacic process, and that's called tracheobronchiomalacia. A few years ago, I looked after a patient who had this condition and wanted to invest and help us establish a more robust and strategic view on how to, to look at this condition and try and help patients. And so we set up this charity, Relax Charity, which is uh, regarding lax or large airway collapse with symptoms. And it's run through the Brompton Charity. People are welcome to have a look on the website. and They can see about the work that we've been doing in that charity. And that's helped us fund a number of projects to try and understand what are the best physiotherapy approaches to this technique, what happens if we look at the airways during exercise, and we've just completed a study looking with bronchoscopy during exercise to see how collapsible the airways are. 
and then to try and progress other different techniques such as surgical techniques uh, for this condition. That's fascinating. You personally introduced a new test uh, for the diagnosis of upper airway problems during exercise using continuous laryngoscopy. Can you talk to us about your initial concept, the test you ended up with and its utility? I'm, my, my main thing is I love innovation and I love innovative thinking. Again, I mean, I, I, when we talk about mimics of asthma type conditions, one of the big mimics is when the voice box closes in. So if you have people exercising either on a bicycle or running, if they develop a wheezy type sound and they become breathless, they will often present to their doctor and say, or their clinician and say, whenever I run or exercise, I can't breathe enough and I, and I feel wheezy with it. And what has been found over, again, the last 10 to 15 years is that often that wheeze is actually arising not from asthma, but from closure of the larynx in a condition called exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction. So quite literally, as you run harder and harder, the larynx starts to close in, and as it closes, it creates a wheeze and breathless sounds. And so that gives you the background really to this test, which is a test whereby we place a small laryngoscope, a little flexible tube in through the nose, it looks down onto the voice box, and then it, the, the, the handle of the actual camera sits on a special headgear like a bike helmet, and then we get someone to bring on their symptoms. So I've tested uh, people on a treadmill, rowing machines, uh, exercise bikes, and we even did it with someone swimming in a resistance pool uh, with a battery-powered camera. So they were swimming in a resistance flume, uh, and as they swam harder, we were able to look at the larynx and see whether it was closing in to see if there was a swimming-induced form of this exercise-induced uh, laryngeal obstruction. And more recently, and perhaps the more innovative side of that, we've just completed this work, as I said, where we've now been using a bronchoscope to look at the trachea during dynamic exercise. So it's an extension of that piece of work where the bronchoscope sits into the airway and then someone exercises on a treadmill with a bronchoscope in so we can look and see how collapsible the trachea is when people are putting a lot of airflow over the airways as they exercise hard. That's fascinating. So can you, going from diagnosis to misdiagnosis of breathing problems, especially in those doing exercise? This is an area I suspect if you know if I had to sort of um, if I had to sort of list what I think are the most important priorities for me in my clinical practice is trying to increase awareness of uh, the big misdiagnoses of asthma in uh, particularly in athletic individuals and the condition I just mentioned a minute ago called exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction or ILO for short is still misdiagnosed so frequently within the UK uh, I, you know and the studies suggest that. When you look at the prevalence of this condition, particularly in adolescent individuals, it's as high as asthma as a cause of breathing difficulties during exercise. And so each week I see, you know, lots of people who come to say, come see me and say, I'm really struggling during sport with breathing symptoms of wheeze, and actually my inhalers aren't helping me. And this has been present for a number of years. And actually the diagnosis turns out to be exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction, which responds to physiotherapy-based intervention, but not to inhalers. Uh, and of course, the importance is getting the diagnosis right. So, I, you know, this is the big challenge, really, to try and increase awareness, because if people knew about the condition, like they do in, for instance, Scandinavian countries, I think people would get to a diagnosis much quicker, and they'd get to the right treatment much quicker, and they'd avoid uh, potentially toxic medications and side effects. Interesting. Um, what about uh, switching uh, topics slightly, asthma? Um, I have a pal in the United States, uh, John Hunt, who's written a, he's a pediatric pulmonologist and he's written a, a splendid book 
for the parents of, of children living with asthma. And from reading it, I certainly learned a great deal. Tell us what the current thinking is about asthma and some of the misconceptions that exist around this disease. Yeah, it's a really exciting time in the world of asthma. Uh, and certainly over the last five years, it's, you know, things are moving at pace. And so one of the things that I think people might not be aware of, but is certainly exciting for those of us in the field and for others who see patients with this condition, is that we're moving, I think, rapidly to a state where this condition for many people is being are starting to be viewed a bit like rheumatological disorders were 20 years ago. So for many people with asthma, the standard treatment, of course, is inhaler therapy. Um, and then people get exacerbations or flare-ups, and they have courses of steroids, which seem to rescue the situation. And it's almost like you know approaching a fire and trying to put the fire out after the fire's already lit and the, the building's on fire. You know, you're trying to dampen down the inflammatory process that is already occurring. And yet we now have access to a number of different so-called biologic asthma treatments which work upstream in the inflammatory cascade and actually turn off the process before it gets to that point. And I think we're going to see the same, of course, also for other conditions like COPD. And these conditions are working on the underlying biologic problems and then turning them off. And so at the Brompton, we have a large cohort of patients with severe asthma who receive these biologic treatments and, and they have considerable reductions in their need for steroid treatment, either as a maintenance or uh, in terms of the courses of steroid. And I, so it's a bit like an you know, inflammatory arthritis 20 years ago where people would have joints that were inflamed and then they'd have steroids and then the joints would become um, destroyed in terms of their structure. Uh, and actually now in the field of rheumatology, biologic treatments are used to dampen the process down and then the joint and the strength and the integrity of the joints are maintained. And that's the way asthma is going to go and it's going to move I suspect over the next five to 10 years to a space where actually these types of treatment become much more mainstay for a larger proportion of people with asthma uh, and try to turn off the process before it causes damage or problems or need for hospital-based care uh, and certainly for steroids. So super exciting times and the treatment's gonna really, really change. Whether we'll get to a point where we don't need inhalers is another question, but if you can turn a process off biologically, then one could, start to think about whether we will need inhalers at all. It truly is. There are field changes in the way that we're approaching disease. I mean, you'll see it in oncology. Um, we're seeing it in um, with gene therapy in so many spaces. And, you know, it's, it's going to, <laughs> when these, these drugs came out to treat uh, uh, diabetes and weight loss, um, the, the companies that are primarily diabetes companies saw their stock plummet because people thought, oh, well, that's the end of, you know, that's the end of insulin and oral hypoglycemics. It's never quite that simple, though, isn't it? But yes, exciting times. What, what do you think some of the biggest challenges and other exciting developments in your field today? I, I, obviously, the sort of more global challenges with respect to how we integrate and utilize and harness technological advances. And particularly, of course, I'm thinking about AI and how we can use that within our own field often we're sort of um, left looking over at fields in oncology and even cardiology. Sometimes we're a little bit behind the curve in terms of utilizing modern or innovative technologies in our own specialism. You know, when I think about the way asthma is diagnosed, for instance, still within the UK, it's still the case that the vast majority of people are diagnosed clinically. They'll say they have wheeze and breathlessness and they'll be given an inhaler and that will somehow become 
a known diagnosis in their notes, but they'll never have had any proper objective diagnostic testing. So there's, there's, there's being able to use these exciting and innovative treatments and get access to the new and exciting diagnostics and then the treatments. But at the same time, we've got to make sure that the basics are done well right across the board and so that people have a, an equity of access to these types of approaches. So, I mean, I think that's the challenge. The challenge is making stuff simple enough, widely available enough, um, and then identifying people who will do well early from these novel treatments and then getting them to that as soon as possible. And cardiologists, you know, I mean, when I think about how asthma is diagnosed and then the sort of way angina is dealt with, where back in the day people would be given a GTN spray and say, well, take the GTN spray. If it gets rid of your chest pain, we know what the diagnosis is. Well, I mean, now I think most cardiologists would laugh at that as an approach to their clinical management. They would think that's totally unacceptable. And yet, if you come in with a wheeze and breathlessness, you're given a blue inhaler and see if that makes any difference to you. So, you know, th th there's a lot of work to do in our field. Well, um, switching a little bit, can you tell us a bit about uh, your work with the respiratory expert panels and uh, both the UK Sports Institute as well as the International Olympic Committee? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a great honour to work with both of those um, committees and organisations. Certainly with the IOC, I was involved with um, the chair, Martin Schwellness, in outlining and working on a number of guideline documents to try and improve the way in which we assess and manage respiratory issues. I mean, as I said, said a little while ago, respiratory issues are incredibly common in elite athletes and respiratory infection or infective type episodes are really very, very common in major sporting events. So if you look at the incident of events which cause people to go to a medical tent, you know, it's respiratory tract infection or symptoms like uh, that, that look like an infection, which cause most of the presentations. So within that document, we spent, and within the documents for the IOC, we spent a lot of time trying to emphasize best practice, look at the research evidence, try and help people right across the globe work to provide the best care for athletes. And the same, of course, is true with the UKSI when I'm trying to look at how we might approach the management of allergic rhinitis. What are the different ways in which we can be better at making the right diagnosis? Can we use novel treatments such as desensitization to help athletes who you know, get to the crucial part of their season and then their ability to perform is impacted so massively by hay fever symptoms uh, and, and other things such as asthma? Well, unfortunately, we're coming to the, the end. I mean, I've, I've got a ton of questions, so I think we shall have to ask you to come back. But I, I like to ask all of my guests, if you were granted three wishes for the future of your area of healthcare or the present, what would those wishes be? Wow. Um, I mean, I, I'd like increased awareness of respiratory health and respiratory illness. I think, as I said just a minute ago, we often play, I think, second fiddle to other specialisms, and that may be our own doing, but it would be great if uh, for the future of healthcare that people could be aware of the importance of the respiratory system. And from that, funding could flow for research and other activities, which are so important to progress good respiratory health. I think from an NHS perspective, it would be great if the NHS could still keep an eye on innovation and support it. I know there's been a move towards hitting targets and deadlines. Of course, that's very important, but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that the, the developments and the investment in innovation will help us um, move things forward considerably and actually will address some of the waiting list issues and other things if we can continue to have a have sight of that. And then the third thing is, I think healthcare systems should not overlook the importance of strategies that are preventative and particularly 
with an eye on exercise medicine. So the specialism of sports and exercise medicine is so crucially important. And yet I think many people think it looks at those people are looking after athletes or people who've got sports injuries. And yet actually looking after the health of the nation and promoting exercise will massively pay dividends, I think, for our country if we can, can invest in that. Oh, absolutely. No two ways about it. Um, you know, if you look at the, the preventive things that we could do, my goodness, can you imagine if cigarettes were actually, uh, you know, off the agenda and if people weren't actually morbidly obese, um, what the world would be like? Listen, James, utter delight having you with us. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for everything you're doing to uh, increase uh, our awareness and improve the outcomes of people living with respiratory disease. And love to have you back. Great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to join you. So, folks, please subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Check out the archives. Tell your friends. Like us on social media. All the usual podcasty type stuff. And please join us next week for another fascinating episode of the EMJ podcast. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakyo, and I thank you for listening. Please, everyone, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.